Welcome to the Business of Design podcast. I'm Cheryl Horn, Director of Operations for Business of Design. I've worked with Kimberly and the Business of Design community since 2007, and I can say with absolute consistency that December is an extremely busy month for working on your business. Whether it's that projects slow down and everyone gets ready for the holidays, or just the motivation of starting a new year, December has always been a month of new members joining our community and current members putting in more time making their way through our programs. So as Business of Design takes time to work on our business and plan for what's to come in 2021, we've got a couple of repeat episodes lined up for you. This time last year, we aired episode 142 with Business of Design member Annie Elliott, who shared her methods for effectively working on your business. In it, you'll hear Annie mention that she's played around with the order of the steps in the BOD 15, and on occasion hosted trade day after the presentation. We've reached out to Annie and asked her to come back on the show and talk about the pros and cons of having trade day at step three versus after the presentation and what she's landed on in the last year. I know Kimberly's going to have some opinions on that. We'll have that for you in the new year, as well as all new episodes starting on January 5th. If you're a member of Business of Design, please join us for the next BOD Live on January 13th. We'll be walking through the new Design for Living course, which is part of the new BOD Blueprint program launching on January 6th. Until then, have a happy and healthy holiday season. Enjoy the show. Hey, you fabulous designer type you. Welcome to Business of Design episode 142. And we're going to talk about what has to be my mantra for life. Working on your business, not just in your business. And I always say this, I'm sorry if you've heard it a thousand times, but thank you to Michael Gerber who wrote the E-Myth. That's where the concept comes from. And that's what Annie Elliott and I are going to talk about. I met Annie in DC at a Business of Design chapter meeting. We bonded immediately because we have the same kind of drive and ambition. And we're both implementers. We're willing to learn something and go back to the office and put it into practice and see if it works. So I was fired up when I talked to Annie in DC and we decided we had to do a podcast together and she's got great actionable advice in this episode. You're going to love it. Annie said she was always interested in interior design, but she really didn't know how to make it a career and she didn't initially have enough courage to find out whether or not it would be a good career for her. Eventually, though, she kind of hit her mid-30s and had a pair of twins, how lovely, and decided it was time to quit the well-paying, secure job she had at the Smithsonian and talk to her friends about being a designer. And immediately, she heard the advice that you need to work on your business, not just in your business, and she really took that to heart. There's so much about this episode I love, and I particularly love the advice at the end, the design intervention, which is don't make decisions on behalf of your customers. And how that translates for me is don't deny clients the opportunity to see something that's a splurge that might really be fabulous and change the entire feeling, mood, vibe of the project. Don't rob them of the opportunity to see it and at least consider it. Don't take away sticker shock from your clients. That's not always doing them a favor. Of course, if you have a client who says, my budget is $10,000 and that's all there is and that's what you've agreed to do, you have to be mindful of that. 
but most clients don't know exactly what they should be paying for the project, and most clients are willing to splurge on one or two strategic items that will make the difference. And too often, as the design professional, we say, oh, wow, no, I can't show them that. It's too expensive. And what we really mean is it's too expensive for me. I don't see the value in it. So I've learned to rethink that whole proposition and try to see the value from the client's perspective. So often, it's the one item that's a major splurge that my clients will talk about forever. Annie probably explains it better than I do, and I think you'll really relate to her enthusiasm for the business. It's a great episode, and we're trying to keep these December episodes as we approach the holidays a little bit shorter, because I know you're all running around like crazy. It's condensed, but it's good. Welcome to the Business of Design podcast with Kimberly Selden. Business of Design is the world's best business training for interior design professionals like you. We have the systems, strategies, and protocols you need to consistently satisfy clients, increase profitability, and run your projects like a boss. Unlike traditional coaching, BOD is a fast track to immediate results. Don't try to do this alone. Join today and you'll have access to hundreds of targeted training modules, plus member perks like BOD Live events, member-only podcasts, preferred pricing, and the support of an engaged community of peers. We all know design matters. At Business of Design, we think designers matter too. Hey, Annie, so nice to talk to you today. Nice to talk to you too, Kimberly. Thanks so much for having me. I snorted out loud when I read that you are a recovering art historian. (laughs) And then I wonder, like, how does a recovering art historian find herself as an interior design professional? Right, right, exactly. Well, it was a it was a curvy road for sure. I mean, I'd always been interested in interior design, but I just I just didn't know how to go about it. You know, I grew up in upstate New York. I certainly didn't know any interior designers, and I just I just didn't have the wherewithal. And there was there was also the issue of my brother, who is a musician, um, and I kind of had this weird idea that there wasn't room for two creative people in the family, which is insane and ridiculous, of course. But at the time, <laughs> many years ago, that was where my thinking was. And were your so, Were your parents academics, and maybe that's no, how you got no. That? No, no, not at all. Not at all. They were social workers. And then my mom um, was an editor. So um, no, not at all. It was completely from from me that I just didn't feel like we could have two creatives in the family. Um, so I thought that going into museums and museum work was a good sort of creative adjacent <laughs> path to pursue. Um, so I did work in a museum in Philadelphia for three years and just loved it. Um, a house museum called the Rosenbach Museum and Library. And after that, I went to grad school for two years and got a master's degree in art history. But I was always interested in museum administration. You know, I really envisioned myself eventually becoming um, a museum director. And so it wasn't until... um, I graduated and then came to DC and was working at the Smithsonian that I realized that actually where I was in my career at that point was very far removed, not only from art, but from people. You know, I was writing corporate sponsorship proposals and, you know, managing people and worrying about PR and things like that. And I was just so far from 
a person's interaction with art. And that's really what I wanted to get to. So I sort of dusted off this seed that I, that I had for many, many years prior and started taking some classes at the Corcoran, um, the Corcoran College of Art and Design, which has undergone many iterations since then. Um, but I did just enough work to get some encouragement, you know, certainly didn't stick around long enough for a degree, but then I got pregnant with twins. <laughs> so I was sort of in the classes with my little bag of saltines, you know, eating away. Um, but I just kind of made the switch. I, I left the Smithsonian exactly four years after I got there on great terms. I love everyone, still in touch with everyone back there. Um, but this career suits me so much better, I think. Well, I just found our sharing when we were together in D.C. to be um, really mature and very much about that 80% of the equation, which is all business, and then 20%, mm -hmm. of course, being what's left over is creative. So right. I thought you'd be a perfect person to talk about how you made that transition, I guess, successfully and what the rest of us can learn from how you made that transition. Right, right. Um, well, I hope I have some hope I have some points to offer people um, because you're exactly right. I do think a lot of people get into interior designer decorating because they love beautiful things and they want to help people love their homes and you know best intentions. Um, but it's such a detail oriented business, and the larger you get, the better records you better be keeping. And so, I've had business advisors in the past. And every single one of them have said, rightly so, you need to work on your business, not in your business. You need to work on your business. I, I always like, have to credit Michael Gerber for that because I hear oh, that really? too from people. He's the originator of that concept and he wrote oh, the is book. He? Yeah, it's called The E-Myth. And mm. it is a tiny little book, and I, I recommend it. It's actually, I recommend it in one of my books. And mm -hmm. a tiny little book, and he talks about the entrepreneurial trap that if you are an huh. entrepreneur and you're actually doing the physical job that you are selling. So he gives right. the example of if you are a dog groomer and you're mm -hmm. busy grooming dogs, you're mm -hmm. not going to run a successful business because because right. to run a successful business, you have to stop grooming dogs and you have to put <laughs> systems and procedures in place, right? Right, right. So I That's love exactly right. I love throwing back that credit to him. And it's a tiny little book called The E-Myth, and we will put it in the show notes as well. But so oh, you right. heard that advice like I did, and you mm -hmm. did what with that advice? What did that make well, you do? Well, it made me hire a series of bookkeepers, none of whom worked out because I don't think I knew how to manage them. You know, I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't know what the numbers were supposed to tell me. So I feel kind of bad because they were all very nice people. <laughs> but luckily, you know. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because people come oh. up to me all the time and they say, I'm so overwhelmed. I have so much work. I'm just yeah. going to hire someone. And I say like, you are not going to succeed by hiring someone. You can't and shortcut putting those systems and procedures in place. And once you have them in place, you can hire anybody. Anybody can right. work for you. And I right. did the same thing. I burnt out great people 
mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. an effort Ex- to get them to help me when I didn't know how to help myself. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. You need to know what you're supervising and what you're looking for. Very happily, we now have an amazing bookkeeper who is really almost my right-hand person, but um, if I can give a tiny plug, but it's a firm that works only with interior designers. So they're out of Denver. It's called Stemper and Associates, and they are just the most professional, amazing group ever. They're awesome. Stemper, S-T-E-M-P-E-R? Yep, that's I'm right. I'm pretty that's sure right. somebody's recommended them on the show before. I oh, love good. that. That's awesome. So, I know they have some clients here, yeah. Can I back up and ask you, someone yeah. gave you the advice to work on your business, not in your business. So right. how does that, what does that mean to you? And, and what do you do today? Right, right. Well, the the first step, and it sounds so obvious, but I think unless we write it down, it's not going to happen. We have to carve out the time. We have to carve out the time. And so, you know, if you can find one to two hours every other week, I mean, every week can seem so daunting, but if you can carve out one to two hours every other week, just to go somewhere quiet, away from your colleagues, phone isn't ringing, and run the numbers I'm going to talk about and look at them, you really force yourself down the rabbit hole you need to go down, you know? Um, But if we say, I mean, I like to start my day fairly early, and so some of my colleagues come in later. So I try to get that time in before they get there, and that's, you know, kind of a a guarantee. And there's a deadline because I know they'll be coming in, so I want to cram it in. So, um, yeah, you just, you have to carve out the time. So once you do carve out the time, what do you do, right? And so um, look at your numbers. And I think the thing that you are looking for, I mean, if you don't have a software system, that that needs to be your first step. So some people use Design Manager, I know. I think we used that a long time ago. We use Studio Webware now, which I love, I really, as much as I'm going to love any software program, but right, it's, right. Really great. it's really great. And so at the very least, you should know what your gross, your net, and your profit margin are. I mean, that's like the very baseline of what you should know. And so having those numbers, you can create a dashboard with that information. And your bookkeeper should be your, your partner on this. So I have a dashboard that's this very convoluted Excel worksheet. It's not in studio. Anyone can do this. And every month you enter your data. You know, you enter this, you enter your gross net profit, and then anything else you want, you know, you can get very specific. But doing that allows you to see patterns. You know, once you once you have the luxury of doing it for a few years, you can say things like, things you know intuitively, like, yeah, January is always slow. Ah, here's proof. January is always slow. So what are we going to do in January instead of, you know, bite our nails about not having work lined up? So you can see patterns and you can just see where your business is. So I think that is, that's the very least of what you should, you know, the numbers that you should look at. Um, I have to say in my situation, I had to go back even further because nothing was working for me, not how we answered the phone, not our intake process, not our consultation process, not launching the project. None of it was working. And so for me, what was fascinating, I was able, because I was in the habit of logging my time in such a disciplined fashion, I was able to go back and analyze how much time I spent working on my business. And I'm not suggesting that anybody else is going to spend this much time, but I spent 20 hours a week on my my business for a long time because I had so many problems to solve. 
once right. I started solving one problem, two mm-hmm. problem, three problems, then we got on a roll and right. then I was able to look at numbers. I, yes. I didn't even have any of the basic information I needed to even be able to know what the numbers were. Right. So, right. so don't, if you know, if you're not ready to look at numbers, that's okay. For, mm-hmm. for most of us, it's basic stuff. It's the, yeah. it's the fundamental and stuff, right? You're absolutely right. And I mean, and the thing about it is that you have to keep tweaking that. I mean, your system is fantastic and we're, we're using that. There's one thing we switch around, but I won't tell you what it is. Oh, I want to know what it is. I'm not going any further to you, Tim. What is it? Okay. We have gone back and forth on having trade day before the presentation or after, because if our clients have no idea what a stair runner costs, and we have an idea what a stair runner costs. We can estimate that for the presentation, and then they may say, "Oh, you know what? We're not going to do that." So we, but we've gone back and forth. I'm of the mind actually that we should bring it back and do do it before the presentation, so we have real numbers. Um, but yeah. our estimates are pretty darn close, and it just kind of enables us to present sooner. Yeah. No, you and I could do a full on wrestling <laughs> federation takedown about the subject. Um, I, I will say for 10 different reasons, it should go back the other way, but I'll be curious to see what you finally land on. Yeah. Thank you right. for sharing that, by the way, because sometimes people are all, all nervous. They don't want to tell me that they made a change. But. No, 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 exactly. But my point actually, in even saying that is that once you say you have your systems in place, and even if you've gone the extra step of writing an operations manual or an employee handbook, both of which are really great to have, especially the, op, the ops manual, um, but you keep tweaking them. I mean, A, you need the discipline to stick to it. And I am the worst, the worst. I mean, I will say to my team, okay, no more projects less than X. We just absolutely can take no projects less than X. And then the phone rings and nobody else is there. And I do what I'm forbidden to do, which is pick up the phone because I will agree to anything. And, you know, it's somebody and all I can think is, oh, I can really help this person. I really see what needs to be done, you know? And so, and then I blow the whole thing. Then it's two months later and we're scrambling and, you know, the tiny projects take just as much time and effort as the huge ones, but you don't make any money. It's so true. (laughs) And it's, I have so many things I'm forbidden to do at the office (laughs) and I don't know why, but I still continue to mix in and do it my way sometimes. And my staff is like, what is wrong with you? Like there's <laughs> fundamentally something wrong with you that you right, would right, take you that job. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. Right, so, right. oh, thank you. I knew we were kindred spirits, Annie. <laughs> I knew it. I could totally tell. If only I were blonde and gorgeous like right, Annie, it right. would be so good. You, so we've had the same experience too. Like you can get the rules in place because you spend yep. the time working on your business. You get those rules in place and then you have to have right. the discipline to f- stick to them. Right, right, exactly. And, you know, part, you could roll this into the the systems umbrella, or you could put it under the systems umbrella, but periodically, you should also look at everyone's job description, um, because things change according to the person in the job. I mean, as much as I don't think they should, and of course, you should have a job description, and many different kinds of people should be able to fill that role, um, 
But I think especially when you're a small shop, when someone leaves, and we've just had someone leave, for greener pastures, all very happy, um, but we took a hard look at her job description and realized there were actually some redundancies um, between this person and our bookkeeper. And so if she had just stayed on because I had gotten lazy about supervising her, I think we just would have kept grinding through with me paying two people to do the same work. Um, you know, so that was a very good discovery, <laughs> I thought. And write your own job description because I think doing that does really make clear um, the 80-20 that you were talking about, The 80% of your time really is running the business and only 20% is the creative. Um, so some people are hard, you know, it's hard to let go of that idea. I resisted for so long writing job descriptions because, and I would always say, because it's whatever I need. It's what I need. I don't know what the job description is. The job description is whatever we need on Thursday. I don't know what to tell you. And I fought it and I fought it and I fought it. And it turned out it was extremely valuable to write out the job descriptions, to source out those redundancies and to create a streamline job description. So here was one of the problems with it for me. If mm-hmm. I created a narrowly focused job description, it would make it harder. This is in my mind. It would make it harder to hire. I was right, so right. desperate when someone left. We were so busy and I was so desperate that right. I, if you had a pulse and you seemed mm-hmm. really nice <laughs> and you walked through my door, right, you right. got a job and you got, you got a, a job. job and you got a job. And so right, we had this right. little rotation of non-suitable people <laughs> going through the office. And it got so bad that my staff said I was no longer allowed to hire. (laughs) I don't, I'm not allowed to hire because for our staffs. Yeah. Right. Because they walk in, I go, Oh my God, she's so adorable. She's super fun. She's hired. And they're like, no, you idiot. She doesn't do (laughs) the five things that we need her to do. Right. And I was constantly making exceptions. Well, she can't do, let's say this, she can't draw, but Mm -hmm. she's really good at, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, we have five people who are good at blah, 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 and we need someone who can draw. So no, she's not the candidate. So anyway, um, I'm, you can tell I'm super enthusiastic because I feel like you're just (laughs) telling my story here. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But the job description doesn't have to be too narrow because I really hear what you're saying about if you make it too specific, you'll never find anyone. And there's always that that panic when someone leaves of, oh, my God. And so, um, but one thing we did manage to do in rewriting, you know, job descriptions and getting everything on paper is that we realized that there was a pretty self-contained chunk of work that could be outsourced. And that was expediting. And so... I never imagined that that could be possible. You know? <laughs> I know. So good. Shaking. I've got the big like amen hands going here. That's why Annie is laughing. Yeah. yeah. Right? You finally yeah. realize like, wait a minute, there are actually tasks that could take place outside of the office. They don't have to exactly. be sitting here in front of me. Exactly. Exactly. We set everything up in studio webware. And then when it's time to pull the trigger, when we get the check from the client, we send everything to our handy dandy expediter and she takes it from there. And what that did was in taking that little chunk out of this administrative assistant job description, it made, it allowed us, um, a greater breadth of it, it, it allowed us more flexibility in, in filling that position. Do you see what I'm saying? Because yeah. the skill set didn't have to in, include that. Mm-hmm. And so it means that there hopefully would be more people who 
would apply and who would be interested in the job and capable of doing it. One of the things that tripped us up over and over and over again for more than a decade was we would get a check from a client and -hmm. then it was time to place the orders. But we were Mm -hmm. so busy doing Mm -hmm. 59 other things. It was like, we'll order tomorrow. We'll order tomorrow. We'll order tomorrow. And then you lose two weeks before you place Mm. the orders and suddenly something's discontinued or the price goes up or it just was a nightmare. So having an expediter who just focuses on that makes so much sense to me. I mean, it is such a gift. It really was the greatest thing we've ever done. So yeah, I recommend that. (laughs) Um, So other things like we were talking about, you know, analyzing the job descriptions, but another way to sort of work on your business rather than in is going back to analyze your projects. And it sounds like you and your firm already do this when you um, prepare the end of project binder for your clients that forces you all actually to kind of relive it and, you know, summarize the project and go back through it a little bit. Um, But I advocate looking at the numbers associated with your projects. I am so not a numbers person, by the way. I mean, I was an English major, you know, like (laughs) this is not natural for me, but you know, when it's your money, it's important to to Mm -hmm. keep track of it. Um, But if you make a list of your projects from like the past two years, and then just kind of throw down the numbers, what did we think the project would cost? What did it actually cost? Um, How much did they pay in time billing? How much merchandise did they buy? You know, all of that. What was the profit margin on that merchandise? So just by going back, again, you can see patterns, you know, and you can say, wow, I thought these three clients were so great, but they actually weren't profitable. What was profitable were the clients who, you know, we did 10 rooms for or something. I mean, that's really Mm -hmm. obvious, but, but you know what I mean? It really forces you to step away from all of the emotion associated with a job and really look at, wow, that project was hard, but we made a lot of money. So Mm -hmm. it's the kind of project we'll, we'll do again, you know? I would also say if you would like to in future or currently propose flat fees to your clients, you've got to go backwards and look at numbers or you will never be profitable. That's exactly. Oh, my gosh. We have tried flat fees so often and I always get it wrong. I mean, always. And we have data, for God's sake. But excuse me, I think, I mean, we have the data. It's just really difficult still for me to say these big numbers. And I think that is a lot of people's biggest challenge. But it's arguably the most important part of our job. We have to be able to say with comfort, you know, yep, this is going to be a $200,000 job, period, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, um, I think analyzing your projects in that way, you know. And that falls under the umbrella of working on your business, right? You've got to be able to set aside that time on a monthly basis at a minimum to look at numbers and see what things are happening and look for those patterns. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So with the systems that you mentioned and analyzing your projects, all of that is fair and the job descriptions, that's a way to work on your business. All of those are ways ways to work on your business that are really business focused. But then maybe something that's a little more fun for people that also counts as working on your business is planting some seeds with the press. Um, Because we all need press. We all need good press. And Reporters, I think, have more asked of them than ever before. You know, our newspaper got rid of its um, 
its home section. And now it's called, you know, now one editor is responsible for a whole bunch of things. And so if you've ever been in a, in a story and you can pick out that, that um, the reporter, the author, and just drop them a little note with a picture and say, Hey, I was, you were kind enough to write about me in this story. This is what I've been working on recently. So if you're doing a story about holiday decorating, keep me in mind, you know, that kind of thing. So those little, you know, most of working on your business is inward focused, but I do think it's important to remember networking and being outward focused and being very deliberate with the press, not expecting that news stories are going to pick you up, um, but really planting the seeds yourself. I think that's really great advice. And I don't remember ever hearing that on the podcast before. Oh, good. It's good. true that we do want to keep our name in the public eye when we're growing our clientele. And I, I think it's really good that you acknowledge that reporters are exhausted and right, doing right. too many things. Like I remember writing a, a weekly column for the Toronto Star for, uh-huh. for which I got paid. <clears throat> And ultimately, I was let go because they now have people who will do it for free. And it's, oh my gosh, right? yeah. it was a ton yeah. of work. And Ugh. over the years, they started adding to my job description. When I first started, right. it was just write the column. Then it was write a column plus two social media posts. Then it was write a column plus 10 social media posts. Oh my gosh. Then it was write yeah. a column, 10 social media posts, and a live. Uh, ask the decorator, you know, for the newspaper kind of thing. And now there's some poor exhausted person who may even be doing that for free. And if you send them a great photo and a great idea, Mm -hmm. they'll be grateful. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Help them do your job. Help them do their jobs, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I mean, we've always been pretty lucky with press. And I think it's because in the very beginning, I wrote, well, I still do it, but less in a less disciplined fashion. But we have we had a blog and reporters would comb the blogs, I think, to find designers. I mean, this was 15 years ago, so a lot was different back then. Um but they would comb the blogs to find people to quote, you know, and if you're in, if you're the New York times, you might need someone from Washington or California. You can't have everybody from New York. So it was a good way for reporters to, you know, to find you. So I really think that helped in the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know how people feel about blogs nowadays. I'm not sure I hear many success stories with them anymore. No, I mean, the market is saturated. It is just so saturated. And there's so much coming at you, um, you being any person, you know, so much comes in your inbox. And, you know, I, I mean, I still have one. I write in it occasionally, but I find myself sort of using the blog as an excuse to say thank you to the press I get. And so that's not fun for people really, you know, to read about. So yeah, if you don't already have a blog going, I don't know that there's enough of a niche because it's time consuming. So I don't know that you should spend your energy doing that. Probably more profitable in terms of payoff to produce Mm -hmm. a newsletter that goes out to a database. Yes. And I think more and more people are realizing like a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand followers is not the Mm -hmm. key. It's, you know, 35 engaged followers is better than a hundred thousand looky-loos. 
Right, exactly. Was it from you that I learned the term vanity metrics? Was it someone on your show? I think it was. Someone on the show. It wasn't me, but it was someone on the show. And I thought, isn't that a great way to describe it? That was the best. That was really so... That was so telling because it's true. I mean, I did this for my ego. You know, how many how many views did we get? How many likes? How many comments? And, you know, it's it's really all about did it get me a client? And the answer is no. <laughs> you know, and that's so. one more time. You're going back and you're analyzing that data. If it didn't get right. your client, why are you doing this again? I can't remember. Right. Tell me why I'm exhausting myself for this. I remember. <laughs> Annie, exactly. you are a fabulous podcast guest. So you are invited oh, back anytime. You know well, we thank like you. to Oh, well, you're so welcome. Sorry <laughs> I I cut you off there. No, 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 not at all. Anytime. Um, you know we like to end every show with design intervention. I'm curious mm-hmm. what you might be thinking of. Right, right. Well, this this is something I can say I have to remind myself all the time, and my staff is kind of sick of hearing it, to be honest, but don't make decisions for your clients. And that don't make decisions for your clients. I overthink everything. And I always get nervous about a budget right before we present. And, you know, if we're doing the pillows last or something, I say, oh, that's such, that would be perfect, but it's so expensive. I don't think they'll go for it. Maybe we should do this, you know, this fabric instead. It's much less expensive. And then I'll tell myself, don't make decisions for them. And I swear, 95% of the time, when I present them with the awesome, kick-ass, like unexpected, kind of crazy thing, whether it's fabric or a tiny table or something, they go for it. And so, you know, just let them make that decision. Even if it's over budget, let them make the decision. Allow your customers to experience sticker shock. And then decide. (laughs) And if they say no, that's okay. You'll have a backup that's less expensive. But give them the opportunity to say yes to something fabulous, just like you would do, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Don't deny them the opportunity. (laughs) Exactly. How many times have I left a department store with something that was ridiculous, but it looked good and you know, that was it. It's Mm -hmm. over. I didn't expect (laughs) I was going to buy red shoes, but there you go. And then you love them. You love them every time you wear them. I mean, that's the important thing. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I have enjoyed having this conversation with you. Looking forward to the next time we can hang out. And as I said, you're just a fantastic guest. So let us know when you have another topic and we'd love to have you back. Thank you so much for having me on. It's so much fun to speak with you. Of course, of course. Thank you for being part of the Business of Design community and supporting BOD's mission to improve the industry one design business at a time. It's time for you to take the next step and join Business of Design. Like thousands of design professionals in 50 countries around the world, you'll find the systems, strategies, and protocols you need to dramatically improve your business and transform your life. What are you waiting for? Start today.